welcome to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds, a weekly podcast for pharmacists, physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners who are interested in learning more about clinical pharmacology topics. I'm your host, Garrett Schramm, Director of Pharmacy Education and Academic Affairs at Mayo Clinic. To claim pharmacology CE credit or to get a copy of presentation slides, visit ce.mayo.edu slash pharmacy podcast. Venous thromboembolism is a common yet preventable cause of morbidity and mortality in trauma patients. Recent studies demonstrated that recommended low molecular weight heparin dosing strategies may provide inadequate prophylaxis in trauma populations. However, there is a lack of consensus and recommendations addressing the persistent rates of thrombus formation or optimal dosing of anoxaparin. On today's podcast, we have Dr. Haley Thompson reviewing literature comparing anoxaparin regimens and the potential role of anti-10A level monitoring to guide appropriate prophylactic dosing in trauma patients. As we know, following trauma, our patients can have many different complications. And one of these that can occur, but we can do something to prevent is VTE. We have to ask ourselves the question though, across the nation, we continue to see high rates of VTE reported in multiple different systems. If this is a preventable complication, are we currently doing enough for our patients that are at high risk to prevent this? Today, I'd like to explore this question with you all as we identify what places our trauma patients at high risk for this complication, what are some current recommendations that we have at our disposal, as well as their limitations, and then discuss the evidence that we have for anti-10A monitoring for prophylaxis with anoxaparin. Why is it so important to talk about VTE? As I said, it is a complication that we can prevent. However, we continue to see high rates of VTE in our trauma patients with the highest risks occurring almost immediately after trauma, and this can have a huge impact on our patients, increasing their risk of sepsis, organ failure, and hospital length of stay, which we know can add financial burden to our patients and also the hospital systems. The first question that I would like to ask you all today is what factors do you know contribute to the formation of venous thromboembolism? So if you could please pull out your phone and hop on poll everywhere to answer this question. I'm seeing a couple responses start to come through. I'm seeing immobility a couple times here. Still seeing some immobility here, which is fantastic. Coagulopathy. Ooh, a Virchow's triad. Someone's reading my mind here in the audience. Endothelial damage and immobility. And I would agree with the audience here. And what I want to point out, especially for the person who put, oh, two people who put Virchow's triad, um, bonus points to them, is that we can really bucket these responses into the three points of Virchow's triad venous stasis, venous injury, and hypercoagulability. These are the three domains in which we can see changes that are going to promote a patient's risk of having VTE. When we're looking at our trauma patients specifically, we have more pathophysiology that can occur that influence these three buckets. Starting with hypercoagulability, when our patients first present after having trauma, we usually see them present as hypocoagulable. The body is more focused on perfusing its vital organs and making sure that blood is flowing to the appropriate places and keeping that patient alive. We'll see high levels of protein C and often low blood pressures. However, as the patient progresses in their healing and their body changes from being focused on perfusion to focused on healing, 
we'll see a change to hypercoagulation. And that happens as the evidence suggests around 24 hours following trauma. And we'll see an increase in thrombin production, which will potentiate our intrinsic and common coagulation cascades, which will cause an increase in fibrin production and more stable clots in the body. We'll also see a decrease in protein C, S, and antithrombin, our body's natural anticoagulants. And this will kind of take away that break that we can naturally have on our coagulation cascade, further increasing risk of clotting. We'll also see inhibition of fibrinolysis as the body is, again, trying to promote healing, have those clots, and promote hemostasis. It will turn down our body's natural production of TPA to inhibit our clot-busting ability. We'll also see changes in venous stasis. As patients present, we'll see that their perfusion can change, causing pools of stagnant blood in the body, which can lead to clots. We'll also see that patients usually require the introduction of lines or drains in various areas that can act as local sites for blood coagulation and, again, increased risk for VTE. We can also see from injuries that patients present with the potential for prolonged immobility, which we saw was a very common factor that you all identified ahead of time for our trauma patients. And last but certainly not least, venous injury is going to have a big play or here. When we have injury and damage to our endothelium, we have exposure of tissue factor. And with a trauma patient, this can be extensive damage and very high rates of exposure. So instead of having an appropriate local response with our inflammation and our hemostasis, we can actually see a systemic response that triggers inappropriate regulation in the body. We can also see for patients who have extensive injuries, the need for surgery to correct those injuries, which can actually further introduce more venous injury. So now I would like to introduce a patient case that will be with us for this rest of the presentation. This is AC. He's a 32-year-old man in the trauma ICU following a motor vehicle crash. He suffered multiple blunt traumas, broken ribs, lacerations to the upper body and face, as well as a mild TBI. He was admitted 22 hours ago through the emergency room after resuscitation and is now hemodynamically stable on our floor with no plans for surgical intervention. The question that I have for you all is based on his presentation, which areas of Virchow's triad do you think are being impacted that increase his risk of experiencing VTE? Go ahead and drop a pin. I'm seeing a couple pins come through. I'm seeing some pins dropped on venous stasis, some on venous injury. There's some on hypercoagulability. There's one in the middle of the triangle, which someone was being very smart here. Um, so what we really see and what I wanted to highlight with this is that each of those three domains are going to be involved in increasing his risk of having VTE. We see that he is at the 22-hour mark from his trauma. He's likely transitioning to that hypercoagulable state if he has not already made that transition. With venous stasis, he was resuscitated and likely still has the presence of lines acting as local sites for thrombosis and also changes in perfusion. And then with venous injury, we said that he had multiple blunt traumas as well as lacerations, indicating that he likely has extensive endothelial damage. So now we've established these patients can be at high risk for VTE. However, there's an additional complexity that can make management of medications in these patients a little bit more complicated. And that can be changes in pharmacokinetics that we see in our critically ill. In these patients, we can see changes in absorption, distribution, metabolism, and elimination of medications. And the big one that I'd like to focus on is the elimination of medications. 
In these patients, we can see changes in renal clearance, which impacts our hydrophilic drugs, such as antibiotics and anoxaparin. Um, we can have either insufficiency in our renal clearance so that we increase the patient's exposure to the medication or augmented renal clearance where we're clearing the medication faster than we are expecting and the patient is at risk for decreased exposure. And these changes can really make our management of these complex or high-risk patients that much more interesting for us all. And some things that we need to keep in mind as we're managing these high-risk complex patients are some pearls, and that is initiation is key. Quicker time to prophylaxis helps decrease our patient's time where they are not being appropriately exposed to antiprophylaxis and minimizing unnecessary holds, again, to make sure that we are providing the patient with adequate exposure to prophylaxis. Mechanical prophylaxis and VTE surveillance can also be considered to help, again, monitor patients for development of VTE and have that little extra step. The two agents that we most commonly use for VTE prevention are anoxaparin and unfractionated heparin. And I'd like to take a moment here just to compare these two agents. So looking at unfractionated heparin and anoxaparin, these are both heparin molecules. However, anoxaparin is a low molecular weight heparin so it is a product that is more uniform, specifically selected for those lower molecular weights. And being a more uniform product, we actually see better predictability in terms of pharmacokinetics and also pharmacodynamics. We are better able to predict how our body is going to handle the medication as well as where we think it is going to act and those effects that we will see. So this really kind of points to anoxaparin being Again, a more predictable, maybe easier to use medication in certain populations. However, one of the big pointers that really influences the use between these two is the renal elimination of anoxaparin. And we'll often see heparin chosen over anoxaparin in our renally impaired patients. This first landmark trial that I would like to discuss that really compares anoxaparin and unfractionated heparin in our trauma patients is done by Geertz and colleagues in 1996. And this was a double-blind randomized controlled trial that compared heparin and anoxaparin for VTE prevention following major trauma. This was done following results that were found in our orthopedic surgery populations that suggested anoxaparin dosed at 30 milligrams two times per day was actually more efficacious in prevention of VTE without compromising on safety. So this group decided to have this randomized controlled trial and compare unfractionated heparin at 5,000 units two times per day to that anoxaparin dose that was suggested to be more efficacious in that literature. And what they found when they compared the results was that anoxaparin was associated with a lower rate of DVT with a relative risk reduction of about 30%, which was found to be significant. They also found similar bleeding rates between these two arms. So what this really suggests is that we are able to have better efficacy without compromising safety for the patients. However, one of the major limitations from this landmark trial is that, as you might have noticed, we compared unfractionated heparin 5,000 units two times per day to anoxaparin 30 milligrams two times per day. So it really kind of begs the question here, in this trial, did we compare equivalent dosing strategies? Another group kind of sought to address this question. And in 2022, Tran and colleagues decided to do a systematic review of heparin and anoxaparin, as well as a meta-analysis to really identify, are the results of this trial upheld when we look at 
more diverse literature. And they included four randomized controlled trials and eight observational studies to look at this question. And the most common treatment regimens included in these studies were anoxaparin 30 milligrams two times per day, and then unfractionated heparin either two times or three times per day. And this was again done in adult trauma populations. And what they found specifically looking at the randomized control trial first was that there was a decreased relative risk of VTE from those randomized controlled trials. Something to note here though, is that Geertz et al was included in this meta-analysis and did contribute the majority of patients with 78.6% coming from this trial. So these results can really be bolstered by that Geertz trial. However, it is really encouraging to see that from our cohort studies, we saw very similar results where the odds of having a VTE were lower when we used our low molecular weight heparins over our unfractionated heparin. So from these studies, we were able to see in the guidelines a recommendation for low molecular weight heparin for the treatment of trauma patients to prevent VTE. Something of note with these guidelines, though, is that they are not graded recommendations. They are not able to comment on the strength of their recommendation, as there is limited evidence available to us in this area. We are limited by having mainly observational or retrospective trials. And when we do have some randomized or prospective trials, we often find that they are underpowered to truly detect a difference in VTE. So that is something to note as we look at these guidance, but from the evidence presented as well as these bodies, we do see that low molecular weight heparin is thought to be more efficacious and equivalently safe. Let's now return to our patient, AC. He is still on the floor after 22 hours of being admitted. He is stable with no plans for surgical intervention. His blood pressure is 138 over 82, creatinine clearance of 150, and his BMI is 24.8. My question for you all is what prophylactic agent would you like to start in this patient, and when would you like to start it? Anoxaparin immediately, unfractionated heparin 72 hours after admission, anoxaparin 72 hours after admission, or unfractionated heparin immediately. I'm seeing some results roll in, and I'm seeing the majority reporting that they would like to start anoxaparin immediately. I am seeing some responses also saying that they would like to start unfractionated heparin immediately. And for this, I would agree with the majority that anoxaparin immediately would be my regimen of choice from the guidance that we have, as well as the evidence that we just reviewed, anoxaparin was found to be more efficacious in the prevention of VTE compared to unfractionated heparin. And starting our prophylaxis early, so starting immediately since our patient is hemodynamically stable on the floor with no plans for surgical intervention, immediately is safe. And again, has our patient be exposed to the appropriate prophylaxis so that we are not kind of letting VTE maybe even start forming before we're able to start prophylaxis. And one of the things that we have established now is that we have anoxaparin as a preferred agent. However, we still see these persistently high rates. So what really could be contributing to this persistently high problem? And one of the tools that we have used to evaluate this is anti-10A monitoring. We're looking then at what is the level of exposure to anoxaparin and is this tied to these high rates? So quickly reviewing first anti-10A monitoring, the anti-10A assay 
is not a drug level assay. It is indeed a effect-based assay. And their recommendations for monitoring and prophylaxis, really there's no consensus. Some people use peaks, some people use troughs, and it's not routinely recommended at this point for prophylaxis, but can be used for dose optimization. And when we look at the literature, we do see both peaks and troughs used to monitor our patients to see, are they receiving appropriate prophylaxis? And is the exposure what we would intend for our patients to have? So thinking about this tool and in response to the question of, are we doing enough? There was first a study in 2017 by Walker and colleagues that really sought to look at the level of prophylaxis that we were achieving in our standard of 30 milligrams, two times per day of anoxaparin that was established in that landmark trial by Geertz. So they included these trials that included retrospective and prospective reviews in various patient populations to look at what was their level of achieving prophylaxis when we compared high, higher initial doses to that 30 milligrams two times per day. And before we jump into the results, something that I would like to point out that is a major limitation of this study is that there is high heterogeneity in the methods for conducting these trials that did not allow for a systematic review and meta-analysis. And we need to just consider that as we are weighing these recommendations that we can pull from this paper. What they identified in this paper was that there was a trend towards our higher initial doses having lower levels of subprophylactic anti-10A. So we did see better attainment of our targets when we use those higher initial doses. And they also saw that the majority of VTEs did occur in the patients that were using that standard dosing and were having a higher rate of subprophylactic levels. They also did find that the risk of bleeding and safety was found to be very similar between these two arms. So seeing that there is a trend here that our traditional dosing might have lower rates of achieving prophylaxis, this was further investigated by a systematic review and meta-analysis done in 2020 by Grange and colleagues. And this specific paper looked at um, randomized controlled studies as well as prospective observational studies in adult trauma patients and looked at three different ways of adjusting the noxaparin dose compared to our standard 30 milligrams two times per day or fixed dosing. There was adjustment based on anti-10A level and body weight, adjustment just based on anti-10A level, and adjustment based on just body weight. And with these three different categories, they sought to see, do we see a difference in the incidence of VTE when comparing these adjusted regimens versus our fixed dosing? And what we see is that there is not a significant reduction in VTE. However, there is a trend towards lower rates of VTE when we use these dose-adjusted regimens. A major limitation of these studies, though, is again using our observational retrospective um, papers. We do have um, risk that can be introduced, as well as even looking within our subsections for adjustment, they don't always have the same regimen. They have different ways of adjusting based on body weight. There's different ways of adjusting for meeting that anti-10A level, all of which can contribute to this variability that we see in VTE as patients are not going to be treated standardly even within these groups. However, it is encouraging to see that we have this trend towards a decrease in VTE. 
Following these results, Abid and colleagues in 2022 specifically looked at weight-adjusted regimens. So they had four retrospective or prospective cohort trials that compared the 30 milligrams two times per day to a specific individualized weight-based dosing or a weight-stratified dosing of anoxaparin, and again, looked at the attainment of anti-10A levels. They also had a secondary outcome of looking at VTE incidents in the adult trauma populations that they included. When we look at the results, we see that the weight-based regimens actually had a lower rate of subprophylactic levels. So again, echoing the results that we saw in Grange and from Walker, we see that when we have higher initial dosing, we are able to achieve our prophylactic targets. However, when we looked at the secondary outcome of VTE incidents, we did not see any difference between the fixed arms and the weight adjusted arms in this trial. So again, we're looking at, we're attaining our targets but we're not seeing a difference in our patient's outcomes. However, a big takeaway from this study is that weight-based dosing was more efficacious in achieving our prophylactic levels. So now that we have these two pieces and have really highlighted that that standard 30 milligrams two times per day might not be enough for our patients, the guidelines actually updated. And in 2020 and 2021, the Western, Western Trauma Association and American Association for the Surgery of Trauma Critical Care updated their guidelines to actually reflect that finding that 30 milligrams two times per day was often producing subprophylactic results, now recommending 40 milligrams two times per day or even a weight-based or level titrated dosing scheme. Now, we have these kind of puzzle pieces. We've seen, and we've seen in the guidance, that we are shifting towards regimens that are going to produce prophylactic levels. But what we haven't really seen is a firm link to VTE incidents. So our question really is, what is the role of anti-10A monitoring? And Veerhoff and colleagues in 2022 conducted a systematic review and meta-analysis focused on this question. They wanted to look at the role of anti-10A level adjusted doses and the association of VTE. They conducted three distinct meta-analyses to give us the puzzle pieces to create this full picture and looked at it in adult trauma patients who are receiving anoxaparin. Looking at these three analyses, the first analysis was to look at the association of achieving a prophylactic anti-10A level with your VTE incidence. The second analysis, they wanted to see if we have these dose-adjusted regimens do we see that we are able to attain the appropriate prophylactic goals? And in analysis three, they tried to put these two pieces together to say, if we have dose-adjusted regimens, do we see a decrease in VTE? So looking at the first analysis, this had nine comparative studies included with a little over 1,700 patients. And we looked at, again, the prophylactic or subprophylactic prophylactic levels and the VTE incidence in these two populations. And what we see is that achieving a prophylactic anti-10A level had a decreased odds of having a VTE event. Again, echoing previous results that we have seen throughout this review. So looking good here. Analysis two, we looked at those dose-adjusted protocols in comparative studies or observational studies and the incidence of level achievement. So in nine 
observational studies with over a little over 1,000 patients, we saw that 75.3% of those patients were able to achieve a steady state prophylactic level. So we are really able to put between analysis one and analysis two, they echo the results that we've previously seen, that we are able to see decreased VTE when we hit our targets and using higher initial dosing, we're able to more reliably achieve these goals. So when we look at analysis three, when we put these two together, there were nine studies that included a little over 4,000 patients to see when we use these dose-adjusted regimens, do we see an implication for VTE incidence? And when we look at the odds ratio for these studies that had a comparative portion for anti-10A prophylactic versus sub-prophylactic levels, we see again that dose-adjusted protocols had better attainment, higher odds of achieving prophylactic levels. But when we look at all nine studies that had the comparison for VTE significance reported with their dose adjustment, we see that there is no difference in the odds of having a VTE between the standard dosing and dose-adjusted arms. So what this really begs the question of is how do we interpret these results as we try and piece together these three meta-analyses? And what we have seen is that higher doses of anoxaparin lead to better achievement of prophylactic levels. And we are able to see from analysis one, achievement of prophylactic levels does reduce our risk of VTE. From analysis two, we saw that when we used those dose-adjusted protocols, we were able to achieve better rates of prophylactic levels. But when we tried to put them together and look at VTE incidents with our dose-adjusted protocols, we did not necessarily see the decrease in VTE that we would expect. And some of the limitations of this trial that could contribute to that is that when we look at those comparative studies that were looking at dose-adjusted protocols, there were differences in how they titrated the regimens, when they initiated the regimens, and also the initial dosing for those regimens. Some of these papers started patients at that 30 milligrams two times per day, which we have seen leads to higher rates of subprophylactic levels. So when we're looking at attainment or time even to attainment of prophylactic levels, there could be a delay, which could increase the patient's risk of having a VTE before we reach those goals. So it could be questions of standardized time to initiation, time to even prophylactic levels that could be contributing to this variability in VTE and really confounding our ability to firmly link yes or no, is there a VTE incidence impact? So looking specifically then at some of this variability we see, a couple of our colleagues decided to implement dose adjustment, dose adjusted protocols in their institutions and evaluate the VT incidence for themselves. So Bethia and colleagues in West Virginia created a guided dosing protocol for anoxaparin based off of anti-10A levels, and they wanted to see what was the impact on VTE. So this was a single center retrospective observational study for the adult patients admitted to their trauma service, and they used a historical control to measure what is the impact of this new dosing intervention where they looked at 30 milligrams or 40 milligrams two times per day based on a cutoff of 100 kilos with a titration towards anti-10A level peaks that were within target range. And what we see is that 
when we look at time to initiation of prophylaxis, as well as the use of prophylaxis for anoxaparin, we see that there is no difference between the pre and post intervention arms. So really, those confounders that I suggested with Veerhoff at all that could have contributed, we see that there is no difference in time to initiation and that there is similar use of anoxaparin between these two arms. We also saw in this study that there was VTE that was more likely in our patients that had subprophylactic levels. However, this did not reach significance. And when we look at the outcomes associated, we see a significant decrease in VTE DVT, but not a significant decrease in PE. And again, this could be just due to, we see DVT is the more common presentation of VTE. So it is likely to drive these VTE results. And PE is also, due to it being less common, it could be underpowered for the study to detect differences in PE. However, what we are seeing is that when we control time for initiation and we can control how the anoxaparin is adjusted, we are able to see significant decreases in VTE. Similar results were found by Gates and colleagues in Virginia when they looked at a similar question. They implemented an anti-10A level-based anoxaparin dosing protocol and studied the impact of this change on their VTE rates. So again, this was another single center case control study with the adult trauma patients on their service. And they looked at anoxaparin 40 milligrams two times per day. So a higher starting dose compared to Bethia and colleagues. And again, dose adjusted based on anti-10A level peaks. For Gates, what we were able to see is that when patients reached that prophylactic goal, that the average dose was about 0.5 milligrams per kilo, which echoes the results that we saw in Abid, where we saw 0.5 and 0.6 milligrams per kilo commonly used for these patients to achieve prophylactic targets. And when we looked at prophylactic versus subprophylactic levels for patients, VTE events were higher in those who had subprophylactic levels, which was a significant result. We did not see, however, for these efficacy upgrades, we did not see a difference in the risks posed to patients. When we looked at Gates, we saw that there was actually a difference in the amount of anoxaparin used between the pre and post. And this was different from Bethia, who had reported very similar rates. In our Gates trial, we actually saw that in the pre-intervention group, about 28% of the patients had utilized anoxaparin. And in the post-intervention, this had increased to a little over 50%. So they did a subgroup analysis on the patients who specifically received the low molecular weight heparin to look at the outcomes in this group to make sure that the outcomes we are seeing were truly driven by that dosing change. And what they saw, similar to our Bethia colleagues, was a significant reduction in VTE and DVT and a non-significant reduction in PE. And again, we can see that the DVT rates are likely driving our VTE outcomes. So looking at both of these trials, we are able to see that when we have our controlled dosing protocols, we can control for some of those confounders that can pop up in our literature when we're looking at this question to produce results that suggest when we are able to start at higher initial doses and titrate towards prophylactic anti-10A levels, we can see a decrease in VTE. The question that I would like to present to you now, and this is our last question of this presentation, 
is AC. He's back with us again. And we started him on anoxaparin 40 milligrams two times per day per our last check-in. My question to you all is based on the evidence that I've presented today, would you want to monitor his anti-10A levels? And of note, his blood pressure was still 138 over 80. His creatinine clearance was 150 milliliters per minute. And his BMI was unchanged, still at about that 24 mark. I'm seeing a 50-50 split here. And I think that this is a very appropriate and honestly, I'm quite delighted to have this result. I would like to say, yes, I personally would like to monitor. And what really drives my decision to say yes is that the creatinine clearance was 150 for this patient, suggesting that he could be in augmented renal clearance and clearing the anoxaparin faster than we might expect for our standard populations, which means he might not have adequate exposure at the dosing that we have started. And monitoring would help us be able to evaluate, are we exposing him to appropriate levels? However, I'd also say that no, as 50% of people have also selected, is appropriate as well. Up to this point, we have not been able to firmly link VTE incidence decrease with our monitoring of anti-10A levels. We have a couple of cases where our colleagues and institutions were able to implement dose-adjusted protocols that led to VTE incidence decrease. However, we have not seen this reproduced in some of our systematic reviews and meta-analyses, so it really has not been firmly established yet. So what we have discussed today is really highlighting that our trauma patients are at increased risk for VTE, and that anoxaparin is going to be the preferred agent for our trauma patients due to having better efficacy and similar safety to unfractionated heparin. We've also evaluated that the standard dose of 30 milligrams two times per day often leads to subprophylactic levels in these patients, which can contribute to the persistent problem we've seen of high rates of VTE. We've seen that adjusting our anoxaparin regimen has led to better attainment of prophylactic levels starting at those higher initial fixed doses, or even doing a weight-based individualized dose has led to better achievement of targets. We have not been able to firmly link anti-10A guided dosing with decreased rates of VTE. However, we have seen trends in the evidence that when we obtain these prophylactic levels, we see decreased incidence. And we've been able to see as well from a couple of these studies that with guided anti-10A dosing, we have seen reduction in VTE. So there is some evidence, but we can still have more to make this a more firm argument. And last, I'd like to leave you with anti-10A monitoring can be considered for some of these patients that are high risk, but presenting with more complexities for management. And that really can include patients that have peripheral edema or hypoperfusion that can change absorption of medications in these patients, changes in renal clearance, which is going to impact our um, elimination, and extremes of weight or held or missed doses that are also going to change how much the body is being exposed to these medications. So for these patients, I would suggest that we consider anti-10A monitoring as a tool to make sure that we are optimally meeting those prophylactic ranges and assuring ourselves that we are giving the patients adequate prophylactic exposure. Some future directions, as I've hinted, we do have some issues with the evidence that is available to us with it mainly being observational retrospective studies. I would like to see a prospective multi-center randomized controlled trial that is adequately powered 
to detect these differences in patients. And I would also like to see it conducted in trauma critical care patients, as well as our trauma service patients, knowing that when we are in a critical care unit, we might present with more of those complexities, more pharmacokinetic changes, but that doesn't necessarily stop when patients transfer to the floors or vice versa. There is a continuum of care and knowing the impact that our patients can have at any step on that continuum really allows us to have better optimization for our patients. So the recommendation I would like to leave you all with today is that starting patients on higher initial doses, and for me, I would recommend a weight-based dose, 0.5 milligrams per kilo, two times per day. And this can be rounded based on how your patient is presenting to either 40 milligrams, two times per day, or even 50 or 60 milligrams, two times per day, based on clinical judgment and that individual patient. And then monitoring for select patients who are going to be presenting with those additional complexities that we know will make it a little bit harder to assess the appropriate level of medication. So those with renal function changes, vasopressors or edema, or even at the extremes of weight. And I really make this recommendation going back to that first question that I posed to you all. If this is a preventable complication and we are continuing to see high rates, if someone asks us, are we doing enough for our patients? I hope that we can utilize this tool as a way to benchmark and say, Yes, I know that we are for this patient, and I hope that you all feel the same. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics.